0: Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit jillgrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. All right, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for Daniel and his posture in prayer. I ask, Father, that you just come and speak to us and help make sense of all of what we're trying to dissect so we can understand your word. We're we're hungry to understand your word. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you now. And again, Lord, whatever is me and my knowledge and stuff I've found, if it's not what you want anyone to know, let it fall aside. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, I don't believe in consequences. I, I really don't when it comes to God. So I'm not at all surprised that we're talking about Daniel and his humility and prayer for our nation the night before a very heated and contested election in our nation. In this chapter, Daniel humbles himself before God, interceding for the Jewish people in prayer and for his desolate home city, Jerusalem. This prayer is one of the most moving prayers in the Bible. After learning about all the evil from, this last, from his last vision in chapter 8, last week, or 7 and 8, we see Daniel as the antithesis of evil. He, hum, he is humble, he is prayerful, he is highly esteemed, Scripture says, and the Lord sends Gabriel to encourage and reveal promises to him for the future. You see, the Lord responds to humble confessions. It's about our heart. And again, it is um, important to remember that Daniel didn't write a chronological book. As we've discovered last week, it's not in chronological order. He takes care of all the glory God gets through the kings and the humility of the kings in the first part of Daniel. Now we're moving on to prophecies and visions. So with that said, the events recorded in this chapter took place approximately 12 years after he received the second vision from chapter 8, which was the ram and the goat. And Belshazzar had perished just as the handwriting on the wall had been predicted, and Darius uh, was king. So that's why it starts off uh, verse 1 that way. Remember, we talked about chapter 7 and 8, chapter 5 preceded chapters seven and eight. So that's why it gets a little confusing to follow the timeline, but um, it is it, it can be kind of hard to follow. But just know this is not in chronological order. The first part of this chapter is important because it shows the importance of this prayer and the fulfillment of the prophecies. So when we break down chapter nine, the first part of the prayer is about the uh, first part of the chapter is about prayer, the second part's about vision and prophecy. And the second part, when we get into it, is controversial. This is because it is a point of division in some Christian circles, a division that we'll look at when we get to the second part. So, but let's first talk about the first part, a prayer to fulfill the prophecy. This is a great example of how we can learn to pray an intercessory prayer. But before we go on, let's back up a little bit. It is a time, as Daniel records, at which the Jews had been in captivity for nearly 70 years in Babylon. As a good student of God's word, Daniel knew what the prophet Jeremiah had said. And Jeremiah was 21 years. They were contemporaries, but there was 21 years that separated them um, that Jeremiah had recorded earlier in the prophecies in Judah. So Jeremiah was a much older man, and by the time... Daniel was reading this, obviously Jeremiah was had passed away, but um, Jeremiah was already the prophet for Josiah the king when Daniel was up and coming as a young boy being raised up in the courts of Judah. So he served under the good king, and if you remember, Josiah was the good king. He was the good king in Israel that got rid of the pagan poles, and uh, the paganism brought back the traditional Jewish ways, the Sabbath went back to the laws, cleanse the land basically and then um, uh, so I'm sure Daniel was very familiar with all of this and he was familiar with Jeremiah's writings but during all of this though Jeremiah is still going um, listen, listen to me you know we've got Babylon King Nebuchadnezzar he names him by name and they're going to come, and they're going to take everybody to captivity. You all need to repent. You need to repent. Even though Josiah was a good king, all this was still going on. Josiah, I mean, um, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was not a popular man at all. He, uh, they believe he wrote lamentations also. So he was lamenting all of the attitude and the, and the problems that Judah was having, even though the land was being cleansed by a good king. So... I just say all that to say it's been about 50 years and um, that Jeremiah's been dead, and Daniel's reading the prophecies. Daniel's still studying the words, the scriptures of the prophets. And so this is what uh, 25.11 says in Jeremiah. This whole country, Judah, will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the kings of Babylon 70 years. So he's like, "What? Wait. It's right here in front of me. Taking Jeremiah's words at face value, Daniel knew the time of his people's captivity was nearly complete. He could have started rejoicing, but instead we learn that he fasted and he prayed. And instead, Daniel's prayers were made mostly of confessions for himself and for his people too. He knew much of the nation had not yet come to grips with the sins which had put them in captivity. So even though there was they were in captivity, 70 years is a whole generation. They've kind of some probably have learned the Babylonian ways, some have kept quiet, but they're still not repentive. Um, kind of maybe going through the motions. Maybe he feared God would delay their return because of this. Maybe he's like, oh my gosh, maybe that's why he fasted and prayed. But he put on he fasted and he put on sackcloth, and sackcloth is a rough Dark cloth, it's coarse to the skin and it's very uncomfortable to wear. So he did that deliberately and then threw ashes over himself as a sign of mourning and repentance all, and it was sorrow over sin. That's what it all uh, meant. So in Daniel verses 4 through 6, it says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people in the land. So he's knowing that no one listened to Jeremiah. You know, no one paid attention to the fact that Josiah was cleansing the lands. I mean, he was, he was studying the scriptures there. And when we pray... And by the way, the, the underline there is emphasis for me. That's not that way in the Bible. That's my emphasis. When we pray and we put our heart next to the holy and spotless God, as we exalt his name, we too are reminded that there, there's no match. So there's no need for us to be going, and God, you need to take care of these people because blah, 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 blah. No, we're, we're, we need to prostrate ourselves against our heart against His, and that'll show that we need to be in a better posture of repentance of everything. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm um, forgive me if I've not been nice to my neighbor. Forgive, you know. Well, he wants us to walk in forgiveness and love. It's a posture, and if we think about putting our heart next to His, that helps us bring ourselves to that point. Um, maybe that's why Daniel uses the we instead of they. He realizes that he too has a dark and sinful heart when it's up against a pure and spotless God. The sins of Israel were many, and God was punishing them, yes, but he was not just doing this because he was mad at them, and this was his decision on a whim. No, he had told them that this would happen if they turned from him. You see, God is always telling us in Scripture, um, Yes, I did put that there. So God tells us in his own words that he's slow to anger. I didn't give you the, the didn't write out the scriptures, but the references are Numbers 14, 18, and Psalm 103, 8. He even talks about, I am slow to anger. And remember, all the prophecies and the pleads to change. I mean, he had a lot of pre- precursors for everybody to, to change before he went on with what he needed to do to. Um, give his judgment on the land. Again, God Almighty is a loving God. We have to remember he is a merciful God with a merciful character. He is merely carrying out what his word had already said would happen. Why? Because he's also a just judge. He's a just God and he's a righteous God and his word rings true. So this is what God had told the people in Leviticus that um, we were referring to in our lesson. So this is Leviticus verses tw- um, chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, and then I jump to 32 through 35. If in spite of this you still did not listen to me but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and, my, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw, you out, will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate. The land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. They weren't following the laws of the land. They weren't following having sabbaths. They weren't following what they what they were being told in the books of the law in Leviticus. So, moving on, Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 21 gives us an Old Testament commentary of the prayer that Daniel was praying. So, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had... He had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked God's messengers, the prophets that were sent. Despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly, or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's people and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So, the nation had disobeyed the command of the Sabbath for 490 years, so they owed God 70 years. 70 divided by 7 is 70, and this 70-year payment was nearly complete. God's law is always complete; it is always true; it is always just. Well, the the well-sought uh, a very well-sought-out commentator for Daniel is a man named John. Uh, wall a lot of uh, theologians go to him. And he explained it this way. Even in the midst of the terrible manifestation of the righteous judgment of God, there was no revival, no turning to God. Rulers and people alike persisted in their evil ways. What Daniel is saying is that God had no alternative, even though he was a God of mercy. For when mercy is spurned, judgment is inevitable. Je, um, Jehovah was being faithful in keeping his word both in blessing and cursing, which must have encouraged Daniel in anticipating the end of captivity, because God is a faithful God of his word. So our job is to remain faithful to God's word. If you've been given a word, remain faithful to it. If we're seeking Answers through everything we're seeing around us. Stay faithful to God's word. Study God's word. Hope for our future is built from understanding our past. Records are kept by historians or even um, us for personal blessing books. I mentioned that before. To remind us of what what God has done for us. And this is to teach us to repent, to change, and to learn from our past. Edmund Burke said it best. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So that is why Daniel had spent all his adult life trying to persuade pagan rulers that the God of heaven is greater than the God of the earth, and if only God would act now in miraculous support of his people by restoring the land and his city Israel, uh, and the city Israel no longer would be an object of scorn to all those around us like it said in verse 16. You can almost hear the pleading in his voice to God in his prayer, reminding him that Jerusalem is still your city, Lord. It is still your holy hill. He's pleading with him. So you can feel the tears as he prays. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hear and act. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. A noteworthy point. This plea comes in urgency when the Israelites were taken into captivity. Immediately they were owned by the Babylonians and held captive. But according to history, and we studied this earlier in our study of Daniel, the deportation happened in three stages. Remember, 605 B.C., Daniel and his three friends, plus many others of the elite, were taken and then in 591, 10,000 craftsmen. And then again in 586, the main group. So it was up to God in his timetable, of course. But maybe Daniel's plea was for God not to choose the later dates as a starting point for the 70 years. He's trying to find where's that starting point. There is There was an assumption based on Jeremiah's writings and the destruction of the temple that that... Was the beginning of the countdown, but he couldn't be certain. So his posture and prayer, so Daniel's posture and prayer, is one of repentance and reverence, one all of us can learn from today. So when we read this prayer, do we pray to our Heavenly Father with such an approach? We must not become so complacent that we fail to pray for prophesied events. God will fulfill his promises. But he still wants us to pray for their fulfillment. He doesn't need our prayers in order to make this happen. We need to pray in order to grow in our relationship with him. That's one of the reasons for prayer. So let's move on to part two. Let's talk about the prophecy and the explanation. So Gabriel again appears to Daniel and brings key information to him. So let's read the prayer. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Yeah, I'm sorry. I need to say that as a statement. The people of the ruler will come. Uh, will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuaries. That's a statement. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So, this is heavy, but you know, it's about as clear as mud. I mean, I'm sure Daniel was like, Huh? You know, so what does this mean? Well, biblical scholars have wrestled with how best to understand this difficult but very important prophecy. Any approach we have to this must be met with tentative with a tentative nature. Okay? It is up to our interpretation our, our interpretation and how the Holy Spirit leads us. But here's, you know, like I said, hold on loosely is the best way I can say. So, but here's some explanation. Okay, the Hebrew word for seven in the prophecy means seven of anything, days, months, years, just like an English word for um, dozen means 12. That's where, where they're talking about here. So, every word in the Bible is important but words often repeated again and again have greater importance like in in um, when when you when um, Jesus came into Jerusalem he's crying Oh Jerusalem Jerusalem he's, you know he says it twice that's important there's a reason for the emphasis in Revelation there's whoa whoa it's actually said three times whoa that's that's that'll get your attention there's a reason for that, it's often repeated because it has a great importance. So there's a seventy sevens. Seventy sevens is a period in which the divine work of the greatest consequence is brought to perfection. So since the week of creation, seven has always been a mark of divine work in the symbolism of numbers. So seventy equals seven times ten which being a round number, signifies perfection. Now some people believe it signifies completion also. If we want to get into eschatology, there's an argument that nine is completion and all that. We can go all sorts of on rabbit trails. But for the most part, seven is, is um, perfection, which in some cases could mean completion because the job is done, okay? So most evangelical Christians follow what's known, all right, oh sorry, let me jump. I'm gonna be talking about a futurist For a moment. I'm going to use that term, and then in a few slides from now, I'll explain that. Most evangelical Christians follow what is known as a futurist approach, which means that they believe that many of the events Gabriel spoke of will happen in the future, not just Daniel's, but ours. So it hasn't happened yet. And um, so, yes, okay. So, verse 25 says. The issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. I mean, we're seeing Jerusalem now as the capital and the people are coming back, but the temple has not been restored yet, so we're, we're still living out some of that prophecy. And that could refer to any one of the several phases in the return of Jerusalem. Now, if we want to go back and look at what's happened in history, let's see what the four options that could qualify what we know has already happened in history. So the decree of Cyrus happened in 539 BC to rebuild the temple, and that's found in 2 Chronicles and Ezra, the decree by Darius confirming the decree of Cyrus found in Ezra 6, the decree by Artaxerxes to send Ezra back to Jerusalem, and the decree by Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah authorizing the rebuilding of the city. So these could qualify as that scripture was talking about, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, or it could mean what is yet to come also. The starting point is, if we're talking about Daniel and the starting point, a lot of them are going back to what we already know has happened in history. So the starting point for the rebuild of the temple could be talking about points one through three, or it could be the rebuild of the city which is point four. The key here is to take the text of verse 25 literally. If we do that, then building of the temple and the building of the city are two different things. I'm inclined to believe that point four, the rebuild of the city, and that um, and that's the point, is what the futurists talk about. They believe that the timeline started then. So commentator... Author uh, John McArthur says, calculating from that date in Nehemiah, and using which is um, 445 BC, and using the lunar calendar, as they did at the time, the seven sevens and the sixty-two sevens Gabriel spoke of add up to uh, 173,100 888 days. And that is exactly the number of days from Adeserxes' decree in Nehemiah chapter 2 until the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry as recorded in the Gospels. So that's kind of interesting. To me, it just lines up. I'm a logical person and this appeals to my logic. But again, God is not a God of coincidence. So there's a reason for everything he does. And then Gabriel says... In verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, which we are understanding Jesus is the anointed one, will be cut off and will have nothing. I believe this is the crucifixion. I found an explanation that lays this out clearly for us to understand. This is the point of contention between futurists, uh, pre-tourists, and historians. Our historicists is how they say it. And here's what they see. The futurists believe that there's a time gap involved between the 69th week, the anointed when Jesus, was cut off, and the 70th week. Remember, God doesn't work in seven days like we think of a week, okay? They believe we're in that gap. We know it as the church age. And the 70th week will begin when the church age ends with the rapture. Now, the preterists believe that all the events Gabriel prophesied to Daniel happened before and during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, so there is no gap. And then the historicists also deny a gap. They believe all the prophesied events took place at various times throughout history. And so um, I actually have met somebody that's a historicist that, that believes that that we're living in tribulation now that we're in the days of tribulation and all that has happened back then well but you know it's not for me to shake my head at I don't know she could be right I don't think so but that you know she has that point of view so none are wrong and none are right but it's all open to interpretation so let's keep going so continuing with verse 26 the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood. War will come until the end and the desolations that have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In other words, when the long 69th week ends with the rapture of the church, according to that this interpretation, the 70th week begins with the ruler. Referring to the New Testament man, uh, referring to the New Testament man, as the man of lawlessness and the antichrist bringing destruction during the great tribulation that will last seven years. Now, Gabriel says in verse 27, in the middle of the seven he will put an end to the sacrifice offering. Halfway through the seven year period this ruler the antichrist will turn on those who bring sacrifices and offerings, mainly the Jews, and set up an abomination that causes desolation. He will bring the ultimate abomination to the temple. The ultimate idol to be worshipped is himself. Now, as you recall, last week we talked about Antichus Epiphanes, and he is known in history as the abomination that causes desolation. That's because he was the precursor to the Antichrist, and if you remember, he did desecrate the temple by bringing in the Zeus and then sl- sacrificing pigs. Well, the Antichrist... Isn't going to bring in Zeus. He's going to make sure everybody bows to him. He wants to be worshiped. And that is what Satan's goal has always been all along. He wants the worship. So he is the false Christ. He is the Antichrist. So, however, though, God wins. All this bad news, let me show you this. The last half of the same verse says, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So God will have his say. Never give the enemy any more glory or attention than he deserves. God wins. God can snap his fingers and it can all be over now. But God chooses to let this plan play out. And God's going to let this plan play out in tribulation for seven years. But then God's going to be like, okay, we're done. Time's up. Commentator Kenneth O. Grangle, which I, I I quoted last week, is a commentator I follow. And he said, remember all... We all interpret Daniel in the light of the New Testament, which I thought was actually really wise to say. Daniel himself could hardly have envisioned more than 2,000 years of history occurring between the 69th and the 70th weeks. But with the addition of information from the prophecies of Jesus that are found in Matthew chapters 24 and chapters 25 and the book of Revelation, this picture takes on a more specific viewpoint. If you look up Matthew 24 and 25 and you have a red letter Bible, this is where it's all read. It's all Jesus' words. He's talking about what is to come. So regardless, though, of what or how we choose to believe, which interpretation, all of us, the good news is all of us who believe in Jesus Christ believe that Jesus will come again and put an end to sin and will reign eternally in righteousness. Yay! This kind of faith should produce hope and joy in us, not fear. And if it's producing fear, it's not coming from heaven. Just tell you that right now. I told you that last week, but that's what happens when we get in these prophecies. The enemy gets in there, and you keep thinking, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get through this. It's all confusing. We're not supposed to know everything. We're not there yet. But if we're keeping our eyes on Jesus and we're posturing our prayers the way, we're, the, way the Lord wants us to, the way Daniel did... We're going to get through this and we're going to not have our hope and joy stolen. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. So as we close, here are some points that we should remember as we leave chapter nine. Before we worry about what the Bible means, we must have a solid knowledge of what the Bible says. Bible study is always a great preparation for prayer. Praying should be in our lifestyle, not just in emergencies. So if we're just doing it in emergencies, let's build a habit of just, of of seeking the Lord in habit in every day. Like Steve said, let's get to a point where we're saying, what's on your mind, Lord? I love that. Let's not get wrapped up in the prophecy of Daniel that we miss the incredible prayer that's spoken in this chapter. That's what I want us to focus on. People who humble themselves before God will remember God responds to our humble confessions. He responds to grace and gives second chances. He heals relationships, and he mends hearts as well. So when we pray, here's something I want us to remember, something I was taught. It's called ACTS, A-C-T-S. If you're not sure how to pray, we start with adoration. Oh, Lord, we praise you. You are king, Lord. You are a loving God. You begin talking about his, his attributes. And we talked about that in our lesson. You are worthy. And then you move on to confession. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help our, cleanse our hearts. Um, you know, you move on into those kind of types of confessions. And then you move on to thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, for being so faithful. We thank you that you are just. We thank you for the roof over our head, the food on our table, the jobs I have. You know, you can go on and on and on. That thankful heart changes. And then supplication, which is then making your requests known. Making your requests known. So with that said, I want to end with a short prayer to the Lord, but I'm going to start off with Second Chronicles 7.14, because this is the night before an election. This election can change. It can change a lot of things in the nation. It can change the attitude in the nation. And the question is, God's not, God already knows the outcome, and he's not going to change, so we don't need to. We need to stand firm and be stable. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, you say in Second Chronicles, if my people come who are called by your name, Lord, you will humble, and, and if we humble ourselves, And pray and seek your face. And turn from our wicked ways. Then we will hear. Then you will hear. And will forgive us our sins. And will heal our land. Lord we pray. We humbly. Humbly bow to you. Ask you to forgive us of our sins. To remember the prayers of your saints. Tonight. we, We don't fear. We're not going to be nervous about the outcome of this at all. Because. Your will will be done in our lives and in tomorrow's election. And we trust you, Lord, with our future. And we trust you, Lord, with our lives. And we trust you, Lord, with our nation. But we ask that you remember our nation, Lord, and hear the prayers of the saints that are praying up to you that your will be done and heal our land. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.